Good morning. We are in week two of Bible Legends, learning from the greats of the Bible. And the story of the Bible Legends that I am bringing to you this morning starts off with, I think, one of the most epic Hollywood-esque beginnings to any story in the Bible. It starts off like this. In the days when the judges ruled. And what that is saying is that this story takes place a while after the story that Chris shared with us last week, which was the story of Moses. So after Moses died, uh, you'll remember Joshua takes the people of Israel into the Promised Land. And when Joshua dies, that is when the time of Judges begins. So the time of Judges was about sort of 400 years of real sort of anarchy and oppression. And you will not find, as a tip for you, the story of Judges, the book of Judges, you will not find in any kid's Bible. It is absolutely brutal. So the last two or three chapters of Judges in particular, I went back and read as part of this, and I counted up the death toll. And there are 90,000 people killed in battle just in the last sort of two or three chapters of Judges. It is brutal, it is offensive, it is shocking. It's a time of tragedy and sort of a cycle that happens to the people of Israel. So they turn from their ways and begin to sin. Then they are oppressed by their enemies, so a foreign nation will come and oppress them. And then they will repent, and God raises up a sort of judge, a deliverer, who defeats the enemies, and then there's peace. But that doesn't last for long, and then the people turn again to their wicked ways, and the whole cycle starts again. And a line is repeated in the last sort of few chapters of Judges, and in actual fact it's the very last line of Judges, and it sort of sums up the whole time, and it is this. In those days, Israel had no king, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And some pastors and theologians sort of make the point that a culture like that has sort of some similarities to our culture today, especially with this sort of, I guess it's known as expressive individualism, the idea that today I get to choose who I am and who I want to be, and then that is who I am. And I think probably the time that we're in right now probably just takes that even further, a time of huge instability, uncertainty. The normal is gone, everything is different, and for who knows how long. So this is a context that we can find ourselves in. And with that context, you will be ex expecting an epic story. You'll be thinking, okay, that story of chaos and instability, this is gonna have a story of a king, Conquering battles, temples, swords, fires, goats. I don't know. And I hope that you won't be disappointed uh, because there aren't any of those, especially goats, in the story of the Bible legends that we're talking about today. No, the story of today's Bible legend is, yes, one of suffering in the midst of time of instability. Yes, absolutely. But it is a story of faithfulness of kindness, of endurance, and hope. 
and hope and endurance in the midst of times of instability, turmoil. That, I think, and my hope is, something that we can find ourselves in this morning. It's a short book of the Bible that the author, Carolyn Custis James, said, I can't think of a more relevant book of the Bible in today's world than this book. And this book, four chapters, tells the story of the Bible legend that we are looking at today. And her name is Ruth. So, in the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. So a man named Elimelech left Bethlehem, his hometown, with his wife Naomi and his two sons. And because of the famine, he goes to a country that was Israel's enemy, Moab. Leaves the promised land, goes to Moab, and he takes his two sons, and they marry Moabite women, Ruth and Orpah. And while they're in Moab, Elimelech, he dies. And then, so do their two sons. So you're left with Naomi and her two daughters-in-law, Ruth and Orpah. And this all happens in the first five verses of the book. And just to make the point, in a sort of patriarchal society, as it would have been back then, where your worth, your belonging, is all about your belonging, and as a woman at that time, particularly who your husband was, and especially your sons, Naomi has lost both. So still in chapter 1 here, Naomi hears that the Lord has come to the aid of his people back in Bethlehem. So she sets off back to Israel with Ruth and Orpah. And then we have this scene where along the way, Naomi turns to her two daughters-in-law and says, what are you doing? You shouldn't be coming with me. Go back to your families in Moab. It's going to be tricky for you. There's nothing here for you. Let me go on alone. And you sort of have this back and forth. And I, I kind of think maybe this was a little bit like the scene where if you go out for lunch with somebody and the bill comes and the person's like, I'll pay. And the other person's like, no, let me pay. And you just have this kind of interesting back and forth. So. Ruth and Orpah say, no, we're coming with you. And then Naomi kind of says this like, you know, a bit more forcefully, but it's almost kind of amusing. She says, look, even if I was to get pregnant today, and she's probably post-menopausal here, so that's not going to happen. Even if I was going to get pregnant today, what, are you going to wait for my sons to grow up and then you're going to marry them? And so there's this kind of back and forth. And then Orpah says, go on then, okay, fine, I'll, I'll go back. But Ruth, Ruth comes back way over the top. This is kind of the equivalent in my sort of a lunch analogy of taking the other person's wallet and throwing out of the window. She says this, Ruth 1 verse 16, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. When Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. So, Naomi and Ruth, they head back to Bethlehem, and the chapter ends with people saying back in Bethlehem, can this be Naomi? And Naomi says, don't call me Naomi, because the name Naomi means delight or lovely. And instead she says, call me Mara, which means bitter. So, chapter two, and Ruth. Ruth 
is in calamity here and really quite hopeless. So remember now, she is a widow and she is with her mother-in-law, but also she's a foreigner. So she's introduced here as Ruth the Moabite, and that is kind of her identity, as we'll kind of pick up here. And chapter two starts off with Ruth looking for food, so going out to the fields to pick up grain left behind by the workers. And she says, let me go out and see in whose eyes I find favor. And chapter two, verse three, there are sort of these four words which really sum up Ruth's story, and they are these, as it turned out. And as it turned out, she had ended up in a field belonging to someone called Boaz. And Boaz was from the clan of Elimelech. Remember that name? That is Naomi's husband. And here's another, as it turns out, or it says, behold, or just then in this bit. What a coincidence, Boaz turns up in the field right there. And he asks the overseer of the workers, who does that woman belong to? What he's really asking is, who, who is she? Who is she married to? Where is she from? And the, over says, uh, the overseer says this, she is the Moabite who came back from Moab. She doesn't have a name. She is the Moabite who came back with Naomi, and that's her identity now. But Boaz talks to Ruth, and Boaz is introduced in the Bible here as a man of noble character. And he says to Ruth, he says, basically, you stay with me, stay in my field, I'll make sure that you are protected and that you're not harmed. Remember, this is dangerous for Ruth. You're not going to be harmed. Uh, whenever you're thirsty or hungry, I'm going to provide for you. And she asks him, why are you being kind to me? Why are you showing me favor? And then Boaz replies, verse 11 of chapter 2, I have been told all about what you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband. How you left your father and mother and your homeland and came to live with a people that you did not know before. May the Lord repay you for what you have done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge here. So Boaz has heard of Naomi's reputation. And he affirms what she's done and affirms her character. And actually, he goes further. So Boaz actually arranges for his workers to sort of leave extra land and extra sort of grain for Ruth. And in doing so, he's actually sort of uh, according with an ancient uh, law that you can find in Deuteronomy, which affords hospitality and welcome and protection to strangers. And Ruth works in the field, and we're told that she works hard until evening. And then she goes back to Naomi with, I think it's probably fair to say here, a lot of grain, a huge amount of food. And Naomi says, and I'm kind of paraphrasing a bit, wow, what is this? Whose field have you worked in today? And Ruth says, Boaz, and Naomi's eyes must have popped. She recognizes that name and she says, the Lord bless him. He has not stopped showing his kindness to the living and the dead. That man is our close relative. He is one of our guardian redeemers. Now, this guardian redeemer, or perhaps better translated, kinsman redeemer, what that is, or that Naomi is excited about, is again another sort of ancient law from Deuteronomy, but it sounds pretty 
epic, but it's actually a little bit more economic. So what it means is that the man who died, his close relative would marry the widow and in doing so provide for the widow and make sure that that family line continues. And Naomi's eyes, again, must have popped because she thinks she has seen a way out of it. And you can see this in the way that she talks about God. Remember, at the end of chapter one, she's saying, I am bitter. She actually says, I went away full and I came back empty. But here, she says, the Lord bless him. So she is seeing maybe there is some hope. Maybe not all is lost. Now, Chapter three, this is where the story gets turned up a notch and it's a little bit mysterious. It's kind of Ruth after dark and you'll kind of see a bit of that. So Naomi hatches a plan here and she's pretty upfront about what she wants to happen. Jay Pathak, who is a pastor from the Mile High Vineyard in the States, he makes the point here and he says that what Naomi's doing here is sort of shortcutting the process. So she knows that Boaz is the kinsman redeemer. She knows what that means. And she kind of sees, I kind of see where this is going. So let's get to the outcome. Let's not drag this out. Let's be straightforward and get this done. And the plan that she comes up with is, okay, here's what you do, Ruth. So change your clothes from those of a grieving, grieving widow, put on your best clothes, put on your perfume, and go to the fields where there is going to be a party tonight. So she says, dress up in your best clothes, go there. And she says about Boaz, don't let him know that you're there until he's finished eating and drinking. When he lies down, note the place where he's lying. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down. He will tell you what to do. And if you're thinking that that sounds a little euphemistic, I would tend to agree with you. So you can see Naomi's plan here. She's saying, here's what's going to happen. This is what's going to happen. We can sort of shortcut this. And if you weren't sure that finished eating and drinking meant that Boaz might be slightly tipsy, the Bible helps us out here and tells us when Boaz had finished eating and drinking and was in good spirits. So Ruth does as Naomi asks. She goes and lies down at Boaz's feet. Boaz wakes up and says, who are you? And Ruth says this, I am your servant, Ruth. She says, spread the corner of your garment over me since you are a kinsman redeemer of our family. Ruth is being straightforward here. She is doing what Naomi's asked her to do, but she's also reminding Boaz, you are our family's kinsman redeemer. She is saying, marry me. She's saying, I'm yours. And Boaz responds. This is uh, verse 10 of chapter three. And he says, the Lord bless you, my daughter. This kindness is greater than that which you showed earlier. You've not run after the younger men, whether rich or poor. And now, my daughter, don't be afraid. I'll do for you all you ask. All the people of my town know that you are a woman of noble character. Although it is true that I'm a guardian redeemer of our family, there is another who's more closely related than I. Stay here for the night and in the morning. If he wants to do his duty, good, let him redeem you. But if he's not willing, as surely as the Lord lives, I will do it. 
All the people of my town know you are a woman of noble character, he says. And the word there, noble character, is the same word that is used to refer to Boaz earlier on. So Boaz is again affirming Ruth's character and her actions. And he also responds by really clearly following the letter of the law. So he says, look, this is the most, there's another guy who is closer related than me, so I'll go find him and we'll get it sorted out. So, chapter four. And Boaz is a man on a mission. Chapter four, verse one says, meanwhile, Boaz went up to the town gate and sat down there just as, again, just by coincidence, when the guardian redeemer, the kinsman redeemer he's mentioned, comes along. Boaz says to him, come over here, my friend, and sit down. And Boaz gets some other of the kind of elders of the town, and he says to him, look, this is the deal. Naomi is selling this land, will you buy it? And the other guy says, yes, absolutely, I'll buy it. And then Boaz says, well, hang on a sec. So on the day that you buy the land from Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the dead man's widow, in order to maintain the name of the dead man. And at this, the other guy says, hang on a minute, I'm out. I can't do it. It might endanger me in my own estate. I'm out. You go ahead and do it. And there's this quirky piece where the other guy takes off his sandal and gives it to Boaz. And that was uh, another ancient rule where it, it was to do with the kind of passing of property. And I kind of like that one. I like the idea that maybe we should do that today. So when you complete on a house, you kind of swap the keys with the estate agent for one of your flip-flops. I kind of like that. So why did, though, this other guy, why did he say yes, and then when it turns out he's got to marry Ruth, uh, then he says no? So it's because this kind of kinsman-redeemer law, yes, it's just an economic thing, but it also carries this duty of responsibility known as leveret marriage. So when the kinsman-redeemer marries the widow, he has the responsibility uh, that, yes, the widow's provided for, but to carry on the man who's died, his name. And so the son, any son that would come out of that marriage, would actually continue the name here of, uh, of the clan of Elimelech rather than of Boaz. And that would be provided for and preserve the family name. And so that's why the other guy can't do it. It's, there's an element of kind of sacrifice in there as well. So, Boaz has now gained two things, a smelly sandal and a wife, a new family. And we're pretty much at the end of the book now. And the book ends with Ruth giving birth to a son. And the Bible makes a point of saying this, the Lord enabled her to conceive. And I wondered why. And Earlier on in the story, it says that Ruth was married for 10 years before her husband died. And in that culture, being married for 10 years without any children would have made her, without a doubt, considered barren. And that's, I think, why the author of the story makes this point that the Lord enabled her to conceive. So that is the story of Ruth. But why is Ruth the Bible legend that I wanted to talk about this morning? And what can we take from that story in today? The theme of Ruth, I think, can be summed up in uh, this Hebrew word, which is, I'm not going to pronounce it right, but chesed. 
And hased, which is mentioned three times in this book, is sort of translated, I guess, as kindness, love, sometimes mercy, or loving kindness. I like the translation, steadfast love. It's the same word that is in Psalm 23, where it says, surely goodness and love, or goodness and hesed, will follow me all the days of my life. And hesed is mentioned three times. So the kindness that Ruth shows to Naomi in leaving and going back to Israel with her, the kindness that Boaz shows to Ruth, and Boaz again uses the word, where Ruth effectively asks him to marry her. And look at the journey that Ruth has been on, from utter despair, choosing into steadfast love, loving kindness, to go with her mother-in-law, even taking on her religion, going to a foreign land, leaving everything, with this reputation that she develops of loving kindness, of noble character. How did Ruth get that? Not from anything that she was born into. Remember, she's a foreigner from another land. No reputation that's come with her. But from choosing into steadfast love and simply doing the right thing that was in front of her, time after time. The author, Dallas Willard, said this, grace is not opposed to effort. It is opposed to earning. Effort is action, earning is attitude. If you're in a time of uncertainty, what is the next right thing that you can do? It might not be a big thing. It might not be a huge change. What is a step that you can take into faithfulness, into steadfast love today, this week? There are two things that I really want to highlight in Ruth's story that I love and I believe that God has for you and for us today. Number one, God sees you. One of the biggest but sneakily sort of surprising takeaways from Ruth's story is that God can and does use anyone. That God would use Ruth, a female, Gentile, widow, enemy of Israel, to accomplish his plans would have been shocking. But it is true, and it's the story that we see throughout the Bible. It's who God is. And that is just as true today. God sees you, your situation, your hopes and your hurts, your delights and your dreams. And not just that. But my second point, God is working in your life. My absolute favorite thing uh, about the way that this book is written and the story of Ruth are the sort of subtle, but maybe not so subtle, allusions to God working in the background of this entire story. This happens over and over again. So it just so happened it says that Ruth ended up in Boaz's field. And by coincidence, or just then, he turns up in that field. And then later in the book, Boaz goes looking for this other kinsman redeemer, sits down, and again, just it happens that he walks past right then. And then lastly, God's work is out in the open on full display, we're told, when he enables Ruth to conceive. God is working in the details, in the margins, 
I don't know about you, but I look back on times in my life where I didn't see God working at the time, and I look back on them and realize what he was doing, and I see him in those stories. And if that's been true before, it will be true now. This is something so reflected in Jesus' life. And in the book of John, there's a story where Jesus heals a paralyzed man on the Sabbath, and the Jewish leaders start to harass him. And it says this, John 5, verse 16. The Jewish leaders began harassing Jesus for breaking the Sabbath rules. But Jesus replied, my father is always working, and so am I. God doesn't speak in this book, but he is very much at work in everything, in the day-to-day, in the suffering, in the relationships, at work, in families. And the ending of Ruth is just beautiful, where the author of the book includes a genealogy. And Boaz and Ruth's son is named Obed. And Obed's son is named Jesse. And Jesse's son is King David. And many lines later on, Jesus would come from that same line, being called a son of David. So this ordinary story of Ruth in the midst of instability, turmoil, chaos, of doing the right thing in front of you and finding God working in the background, in the margins, in the details, would lead directly to the savior of the world. So if you can find yourself at all in Ruth's story, God is working in your life too. And if that resonates with you, or if that has stirred anything in you, then I would absolutely encourage you to uh, join in with getting some prayer in church online. That will be available right now. There's a team who would love to pray for you. But we are done for this morning. So may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. Have a great week. See you soon. Thanks for listening to our podcast today, and we hope you enjoyed it. For more information, visit ashfordvineyard.org or maybe drop into something if you're nearby. In the meantime, have a great week and know just how loved you are.